Such a treat. So we are going to dive into all sorts of fun topics. We've got cryptocurrency to talk about, digital identities, uh, but I want to start first with your journey because you were originally a successful broker on Wall Street, but realized you're unfulfilled. We're going to go there in a minute, um, but maybe we should go back a little further to, uh, as, as I hope I, it's okay if I say your dysfunctional start. <laughs> 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 Is that appropriate terminology? It's, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's probably relatable to most of us. Yeah. Well, well yeah, I got one of those. <laughs> yeah. Share with us. What was your journey to greatness? I had three siblings. I was the youngest of four, two brothers and a sister. I had an amazing committed mother who was a single mom. My father left when I was four years old and he was in and out of our lives throughout most of our childhood. As we got older, seemingly less so. Um, And so it was uh, mostly just my mom and the four of us in a household that was exceptionally chaotic and uh, lots of fun and lots of fights and lots of challenges and I think we I think it's fair to say that a lot of uh, my upbringing was was done by my siblings as my mom was fighting to keep our household afloat and put food on the table and uh, fighting with my father to uh, support us in any way uh, financially as she had uh, dropped out of college to support us and to marry him. And uh, when he had left rather abruptly and in a very harmful and toxic way that was not supportive to her or to me and my siblings, she was largely left to figure it out and fend for herself and went out in the world and started working her butt off and had at times multiple jobs and was working from four or five o'clock in the morning and till late at night. And that uh, left us with a lot of alone time as four kids. And my oldest brother's only about five years older than me. Wow. So uh, we were in, well, my sister and my middle brother and I were all in high school together at the same time. And we got after it early. We were into drinking and partying and... um, sometimes different substances and that was a lot of what the ethos was in upstate New York where we grew up was uh, drinking and and really getting into things that in my experience most people don't seem to really hit hard until late teenage years uh, often even until they go away to college and so that 
substance abuse was something that was uh, really ingrained at an early age, especially around alcohol with me and that I, I carried through, you know, for a lot of, a lot of my life and it runs in our, our bloodlines in our family. And my father was an alcoholic and, um, you know, that came through in the way that he treated us. There was lots of physical abuse and verbal abuse and sexual abuse and, and, uh, in so many ways, I think he, and I'm sure my siblings would echo this, but he was really the example of how not to be as a human on this earth. Wow. And I'm so incredibly grateful for all of the lessons that he taught us that I didn't know that was going through me uh, through osmosis as a child at a really young age and through my teenage years and seeing the way I, I had the advantage of being the youngest and uh, I did fit the bill as being uh, favored by my mom as the youngest I but I, I did get to <laughs> I did get to see my father treat my older siblings in really harmful and toxic ways through gifts and money and creating leverage and making them feel guilty for things that he would he had done for them. And they got to, um, stay out of the way of a lot of, uh, pain that he had inflicted on, on my siblings. And that in many ways has colored my experiences, uh, as I, left home because, you know, we were, uh, as a kid and as a teenager and getting to high school and starting to understand what was happening, we were always working really hard, shoveling driveways, mowing lawns, doing lots of odd jobs to make money and to be able to spend time with friends. And, uh, we didn't have a lot in it. The town that I grew up in was a lot of uh, wealthy families and, and uh, wealthy people, and a lot of my friends were really well off, and I usually didn't have anything, so I was uh, always the person who needed a ride somewhere. I didn't have a cell phone, so I had to borrow everybody's phone. I didn't have money, so I had to get money from my friends and support until I could work, and I knew when I left home that I never wanted to experience the scarcity and the embarrassment and the shame that I experienced growing up, particularly around money and how it felt so often to be um, the, I don't know, a, a phrase that was used in our family a lot was black sheep. And me and my siblings were also in trouble all the time. I mean, I was drinking in school. I almost got expelled. I was suspended multiple times for being drunk. And I was a lunatic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got really good grades and my teachers liked me for the most part. But I was also... Uh, a bully and a troublemaker and an instigator and 
I was mean and, and aggressive and vulgar. And so much of that also came through my father and, and different experiences that we had growing up in a, a house that was really dysfunctional with four kids who were were pretty pretty crazy and tough to handle. And hats off to my mom for still managing to always stress the importance of good values and manners in the in the way that you show up in the world despite being uh, not having a lot and yeah. that it wasn't about what you had that you could still say please and thank you and you could still treat people with love and kindness and unfortunately I didn't learn that until uh I don't know, my late 20s, um, when I had start, started to process uh, all of the really horrible things that I had done through my life and how I had treated people. Um, so that's a, a, without so much detail. A recap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Got it. I love that it propelled you into greatness. Like, you were not going to continue that suffering. You were not... Some people... When they have challenging starts, it propels them into a lifelong of suffering. Whereas you use that as fuel to get you out. Speak to that a little bit. How how did you shift? The one thing that I knew... When I left college was that I couldn't go back home and that there was no option to be in a position where I was going to be constantly just getting by and uh, begging people for support. And it really helped to build resilience for me to know that I was going to do whatever it takes to get out of this pattern of struggle. And there was nothing that was going to get in my way. I mean, I my first... 12 months out of college, I moved toward New York City. I was living with my father initially until that became a toxic situation. And then I went from one friend's house to the next friend's house to the next friend's house. And I moved nine times in my first 12 months. I borrowed money from just about every person I could think of. And I had some crazy experiences. Uh, My car got broken into and stolen when I was at a friend's house. And her mom had accused me of trying to commit insurance fraud just to paint a picture of uh, maybe how people had viewed me. You know, I was like the guy living in the basement who was wearing (laughs) these like, uh, over, 
oversized double-breasted suits that my best friend's father had given me and I had brought them to like a local tailor in upstate New York and I was commuting from Westchester to New York City every single day uh Poughkeepsie originally which was a you know two and out two hour and 45 minute commute wow each way working 12 13 14 sometimes 15 hours and she had accused me of trying to commit insurance fraud that like I set up for somebody to steal my car and that eventually led to me getting essentially kicked out of their house and you know a couple weeks later the cops called and they said hey we found your car and there was some blood in the back and they had stolen everything out one of the windows was smashed and it was a a really challenging uh period those first 12 months in in uh on the same day that my car got stolen my mom had driven down and let me borrow her car and then I got a flat tire driving to the train station I didn't have any money so I overdrew my bank account getting tires replaced I got to work like eight hours late that day and the guy who had hired me thought I was lying also and threatened to fire me and basically it was like what are you doing here you should just go home this is pathetic and that was uh, a sort of reoccurring thing that happened, I think, throughout my childhood and my teenage years and in my early work years that uh, so many people uh, doubted me and so many people, I think, did not believe in me and not having a father figure, any adult figure around. I never really had any role model. I never had anybody to look up to. I didn't have anybody to motivate me. And I think in some ways that put a chip on my shoulder. And uh, some people called me Napoleon uh, growing up, (laughs) which uh, in hindsight, I regret to say was appropriate. Appropriate. (laughs) Um, And um, that chip is a lot of what I think also created that drive in me that uh, I wanted to prove people wrong and I wanted to prove that I had something of value to offer to the world and I wasn't going to let anything stop me. I wasn't going to make excuses because of my circumstances. I mean, I had, I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have money. I didn't have stuff. I looked like a disaster. You know, there's like a lot of jokes in our firm. I was the guy who was wearing these like bright um, pastel colored button downs with these double breasted suits. No. And one day, uh, one of the guys who hired me came in the bathroom and just like really gave it to me. He was like, dude, what are you wearing? Oh, no. <laughs> so, anyway, to come back to your question of, you know, getting getting out of that, I think it's just taking that resilience and using those experiences as a way to motivate me and not taking no for an answer and not letting excuses or stories or narratives about my upbringing or my experiences up to that point be a withholding factor of me succeeding that really when it comes down to it the only 
thing that um, leads to our successes ourselves. Mm-hmm. And there have been people uh, all around the world who have overcome the worst of circumstances you could ever imagine. I mean, a, a bazillion times more challenging than what I experienced. And human beings are incredibly resilient and we are capable of anything that we can imagine. And I think when we believe that that's a a real thing, then uh, anything really becomes possible. And there's like the Jim Carrey writing a check for $10 million to himself and it happening two years later. And uh, I think that the universe really has a way of uh, making a reality of what we see possible in our minds. Hmm. What's that quote? If uh, you believe you can, you're right. If you believe you can't, you're right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. What was the, was there a turning point where you just started to make money and it just clicked or did it just, was it a gradual working 14 hours a day and it just just came? I, I had a pretty uh, steady increase in my income from the beginning through, through today. Um, but I think the turning point for me came not necessarily financially, but more in the realm of uh, mental, spiritual, and emotional aspects of life and realizing that money is not a path to happiness. And money is great. It gives us choices and flexibility and allows us to have freedom, but money does not create happiness in this world. And um, when I started to realize that money wasn't going to be the thing that was going to help me process what had happened in the past and help me find joy and love and uh, fun in life, it was a major turning point in uh, I don't know all the details around these experiences because it's uh, more than a decade ago, but I think it's fair to say that I had treated some of our staff members really poorly and some of the members of our team, who some who are still with us, many whom have quit, some because of the way that I treated them. Just if you can imagine an open office floor in New York City with cubicles and a short guy in a suit coming out of his office and uh, uh, really screaming and berating berating you with curse words and calling you stupid and making sure that everybody heard how uh, how could you ever make a mistake like this what is wrong with you you're so dumb you're so this you're so that there was a point where I was feeling guilty pretty regularly about the way that I was treating people and the way that I was, was showing up. And I had another moment where uh, I spent the first couple of years cold calling, making hundreds of cold calls per day, 
sometimes five, six hundred plus and just calling banks and financial companies and lots of different places. And then, you know, you go to these meetings and a lot of times we didn't know their names or we didn't know anything about them. And I had a meeting block with a gentleman who's now my business partner and who has been a mentor for me for my entire adult life. And all of my meetings canceled. And he was also one of the scariest and most intense people um, to have something like that happen. And we went to Ruby Foo's, which was on the corner of uh, 49th and Broadway. And instead of going to the meeting block, that didn't happen. And he really gave it to me straight. And I don't remember uh, a lot of the choice words that were in that moment, but it was a major turning point of me. Like, look, uh, if you want to be successful, that it is going to take relentless dedication and uh, you are going to have to like step beyond this doubt and uh, concerns that you have about your abilities to be successful. And so I think the the combination of those two things were a major turning point. And that was when I, I, he introduced me to transcendental meditation, which has been uh, one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given in my life. Wow. I've been practicing TM for over a decade, uh, almost every day. Um, And I always thought that spirituality was synonymous with religion. And I had an allergy to religion growing up because it was kind of forced on us. Hey, you're coming to church. You go to religious ed, communion, confession, prayers. And I hated it. I hated it. I didn't understand it. I didn't know why we had to do it. And it was just pushed on me. So I was really allergic to it. And when I learned that spirituality was more of a conscious way to live your life that did not have to be religious, it could be religious, but it does not have to be religious, that allowed me to start to step back and not be so reactive to the things that were happening around me and not allow uh, all the stimulus of other people dictate my actions in the way that I was showing up in the world. And I think it's kind of like TM to me kind of became, turned the world into like a video game because Mm -hmm. I felt I could see things happening before they were happening, and it allowed me to make different decisions and different choices that were supportive to my vision and what I wanted in my life and my goals, whereas before I couldn't see it because I was just so stuck in the the tension and the emotions. And it, it just reminds me of my favorite quote in the world which I've hanging on my wall from Man's Search for Meaning that between stimulus and response there's a space and in that space is our ability to choose our response and in our response lies our power and our growth. Mm, Victor Frankel, excellent.
Yeah. And I think about that every single day, especially as the stimulus of social media and everything in our world that seemingly is becoming more intense and more negative and more pessimistic. And I suppose that's where you focus your energy too, but there's lots of troubling things from climate to war to people dying to COVID and, you know, it's like endless that being able to take a step back from that stimulus and realize that you are the sole author of the decisions you make and you get to write what happens next every single time, no matter what the circumstances are, is a major game changer. So true. Love that. I've never heard it put that way, that you had, TM gave you the opportunity to see things before they were going to happen and then choose how you want to respond. Beautiful. Really beautiful. Eckhart Tolle described it like sitting in a movie chair and you're watching the different movie go by of your life. One minute you're in the living room, the next minute you're in your car, right? And if you could just watch the movie screen instead of being in it like the actor and just that little space between you and what's going on outside gives you also a little breathing room and then you get to choose how do I want to respond to this versus letting the movie hit you on your chest and then you're exploding with reaction Mm. is that in the power of now I think so I I, I heard him give a talk about it and I was like "Ooh, well done Eckhart yeah (laughs) he's brilliant I definitely want to get into crypto, but just to wrap this whole conversation up about um, how do you believe in yourself when no one else does? I want to nail that home because you really mastered that. Was there a defining tool? Was there some kind of core value, a mental model that got you through? That's a really good question. Thank you. I think the the one thing I knew was that I had control over how hard I could work and how much time I could put in. And it, it was clear to me that if I put in more time and more reps and more energy than everybody else, that even if... I wasn't the best or the smartest or the best looking or the strongest, which I never was any of those things, that the thing that was in my control could dictate the results. And over time, it's the reps that drive results in the long run, that no matter how great your skills are, it can go to waste if you're not in in the gym practicing all the time. I mean, look at Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or Tiger Woods or Tom Brady. I mean, there's they're the first person and the last person at practice every single day of their careers. They were absolutely relentless in pursuit of greatness. And they were also the best and the most gifted and the most talented. And I think that uh, when you put those gifts aside, what you have control of is how much effort you put in. The other thing that I would add to that is uh, 
in my early 20s, as I mentioned, my business partner had become a mentor for me and he was one of the people who had hired me. He was the one person who did believe in me and what I would really stress for anybody who is in the beginning of a career or is making a career transition or is going through a challenging time in life or is trying to figure out how to make money or how to be successful in a certain field, having a mentor, somebody who you can rely on, somebody who can teach you, somebody who can help you through the difficult periods, there is literally no price or um, value that you can put on it. I mean, it's literally priceless because there are so many things that I learned through him just by being around him. And I wasn't a big reader growing up and he had this uncanny ability to reference uh, metaphors and analogies and quotes in different subjects. And I never understood it. Like, where do you, where does all of this come from? And it was through reading and, and building a really diverse wealth of um, knowledge and anecdotes and, and stories by teaching yourself and by being extremely curious about life and what's out there. And I learned that you don't have to uh, reinvent the wheel. You don't have to, if you want to learn something new, somebody else has already experienced what you're trying to learn. Or if you have had uh, problems with relationship or business, somebody else has already had those problems. All you have to do is go online and find Mm -hmm. a book that has been written and you can save yourself like 80% of the mistakes. And that allows you to accelerate the path of growth. And I think it's really important uh, to bring it back to your question of how do you believe in yourself is um, what do you want? What are, what are you moving towards? Like, what are the goals? What does it look like a week from now? What does it look like a month from now? What does it look like a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, lifetime? What do you actually want? What are those goals that you have? And I have those today and I rewrite them every single year and I look at them and they're always in the back of my mind. And then as you kind of back up, it's what are the values that I want to live my life by that are going to allow me to achieve those things? Um, What type of person do I want to be? Uh, And then what is the recipe for feeling good and putting myself in a position where I am functioning at 120% every single day? What are the things that are going to allow me to wake up fired up, ready to go, and so eager to get going? And I toyed with this for years and years and years. And for me, it's a recipe of reading and learning and podcasting, like listening to brilliant people like you, it's exercise in physical challenges. It's meditation. It's diet um, or lifestyle in terms of what are we putting into our body. It's how much water intake. Who am I spending my time around? 
relationships, intimate and friendships and familial. And I have a scoring system and um, I have years of data and I know that when certain things are off, it's like really easy for me to go and look at that and say, oh, like I need to just turn the dial up on my hydration or I need to turn the dial up on my sleep. I need to turn the dial up on my meditation, my spirituality, my quiet time, my pausing time. Mm, I love that. Wow, really valuable. Put in the reps, find a mentor, write out your goals. Harvard study had this. If you actually write your goals, they're way more likely to come true. They're way more likely to happen. And then take care of your health in all the ways, like your friendships, your... Yeah, your physical health, your mental health, your spiritual health, all of it is essential. If one is leaking, you got a leaky ship. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, you know, we look at our uh, uh, filling up your your cup. It's like, how do you keep it at a 10? And you and I were talking about us being tribal beings from the beginning of evolution and I mean, we are tribal beings and we're meant to be surrounded by community. And that's been one of the most beautiful things about coming to Austin and, and really engaging with people here is the community is unlike any other place I've ever been in my life. There's yeah. so much love and support and innovation and fun and playfulness and joy. I mean, it's just, it is exploding with... Um, so much energy and I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. I fall in love with someone new every day here. So many incredible high vibration beings here. It's just magical. Same. Okay. Crypto. Mm. How is cryptocurrency elevating the human experience? We're going big. Wow. That's a loaded question. (laughs) Controversial (laughs) one. Can you remove my name from this interview for this part of the... the Officially anonymous. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, this this is a big one. I think that cryptocurrency and Web3 is one of the most exciting in revolutionary innovations of of our lifetime. In fact, I, I would go as far as to say as I think it will be one of, if not the most impactful area of innovation in our lifetime for people who are uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s babies. Mm. And it's doing so many things and it is proliferating at a rate that is is inconceivable and how is it elevating uh life on this earth um i think that there's a lot of things that are happening and it it takes uh walking back and i will try not to get too dense into history and finance and in the weeds of this stuff. But I think if you look at the impetus for Bitcoin specifically in 2008, uh, it was very opportunistically uh, seeped out into the digital world at a time when 
the global financial world was in complete meltdown. And many people believe that that meltdown was uh, largely created by irresponsible monetary policy from central bankers. Alan Greenspan is a man who gets uh, really hung out dry for this, uh, and I don't have a strong opinion on him being a culprit or not. A lot of people have um, held the banks responsible for what happened, and largely they were making bets against you know, their own client investments and um, financial institutions basically packaging up these mortgages that they had sold to people who very clearly could not afford them. And there's this, this has always stuck with me, this term 28 and 2. And basically, they were mortgages that after two years, the rate would skyrocket. And so people... Uh, didn't read the terms of what they were signing up for. And so, you know, there's some responsibility there. But financials in general, I think there's a responsibility as somebody who's in financial services to be an advocate of transparency and educate people because it, it is such a convoluted and complicated world that is not a part of our education system. Yeah. I was a loan consultant during that time mm. in San Francisco, and the banks would come in and they'd say, no documentation, no income verification, 450 credit score, and we'll give you 105% financing. I was like, what? Yeah, right. They were giving money like, out. Insane. They were paying people to buy houses. Yeah, literally. Um, yeah, I. it's... And then on top of that, you know, they're then taking these mortgages and putting them into these mortgage-backed securities products and getting them stamped by the uh, Standard and Poor's and Moody's, the ratings agencies, right. as, you know, uh, top-tier credit. Great idea. And then, you know, you have other institutions then buying the investing in these things on behalf of clients or for themselves. And underneath that... It's it's you're investing in literally toxic waste. Like this is just a um, disaster waiting to happen. And uh, so to, to get back on track here is that there was lots of nefarious and harmful things that were happening during 2007 and 2008 during the financial crisis. And there was a lot of different bad actors who contributed to that. But in, at large... Wall Street plus policymakers and central bankers were at the center of having the power over regulatory and compliance and kind of like allowing this bubble to explode. And it created a lot of distrust in the financial system. And very conveniently, Satoshi Nakamoto, who is the pseudonymous founder of Bitcoin, released Bitcoin out into the world at that point. And Bitcoin uh, original white paper was only nine pages, and it was a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And it wasn't the first of its kind, but it had solved something called the Byzantine's general, Byzantine General's problem, which is eliminating the double spend issue in electronic cash. 
And that was the main cryptographic, one of the main cryptographic problems that was solved that allowed it to pick up steam and people said, hey, they're actually onto something. And the circumstances are what allowed Bitcoin to become what it is today. And so how is it elevating humanity? Well, it's creating a system of money that is decentralized in nature. And we can talk about the semantics around decentralization and what it actually means. But uh, in very basic terms, it means there's no central actor who is dictating the policy for Bitcoin. So unlike the U.S. government who can just print money when they choose to, or you could go to Venezuela, or you could go to Turkey where there's, you know, 50-plus percent inflation, or other places, Zimbabwe, there's 100,000-plus percent inflation. Venezuela, they're literally burning currency in the streets because it is actually worthless as a result of policymaker decisions and corruption that has just devalued those assets, Bitcoin removes those central actors. And that is potentially elevating for humanity because you now have a monetary system that doesn't have a group of people who can make decisions for a very small percentage of constituents. So there's nothing... No one can adjust the algorithm that's mining the Bitcoin? No. It's all its own entity doing its own thing? Yeah. So it's an open source code that was created in, in 2008. And if there, if somebody wants to make an adjustment to that code, they can... But they need a consensus vote in order to do that, which means you basically need the other people who are helping uh, verify and secure and run the Bitcoin network to agree with whatever change you're making. At this point, it's so decentralized. Right now, the mining is like 37% in the U.S., 21% in China, 13% in Kazakhstan, 6% in Russia, and then it's kind of spread out all over the world, and it continues to decentralize further. And mind you, these are all people who are just ones and zeros. These are IP addresses. They don't know. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know who you're communicating with. And so you know, to organize and get a consensus vote there is really, really challenging. What can happen is something called a fork. And there's a hard fork and a soft fork, and we don't have to get into the details, but there's uh, one of the larger cryptocurrencies is called Bitcoin Cash. And Bitcoin Cash was a fork off of Bitcoin. So it was a group of developers who had decided that they wanted to increase the block size of Bitcoin. A lot of the criticism around Bitcoin is it's too slow. It's never going to work as a payment system because there's only X amount of transactions that can happen every second or every minute. It's, it's slow, it's old, it's archaic, all these things. So you can fork off and create something different that is essentially running the Bitcoin code with some sort of alteration, but in order for that to gain 
um, functionality and popularity, other people have to want to use it. And they have to believe that, that there's value in what they're creating. So you can't change. I mean, the, the word that they use in crypto land is immutable. And the code in the blockchain is immutable on Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin network to this day, fingers crossed, has still never been hacked. And there's been uh, thousands of attacks on pretty much every single crypto um, project that you can think of in the Bitcoin network uh, is sufficiently decentralized and uh, has never managed to be hacked. And that's a, a pretty phenomenal accomplishment. Wow. So I think that the decentralization component is really a, a major innovation in the world of monetary policy, and that's one thing that can potentially be really helpful for humanity. I think the another term that gets thrown around is banking the unbanked, and whether it's Bitcoin or it's Ripple or, there, or it's Celo or other... Uh, payment protocols that are being developed in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. You see the biggest users of crypto assets are actually like Vietnam and Africa and other countries. And you say, huh, that is surprising because a lot of it's happening in the, in the U S or that's at least I think a lot of people's perception. Right. And uh, a lot of, People in other countries are actually using these different things for for payments, and they're using it more as a, a medium of exchange versus what a lot of people in the U.S. and a lot of you know others call them developed countries are using Bitcoin as a store of value. Mm. And I don't personally see Bitcoin as a currency, as I think a lot of people get confused around like how is this going to be a currency. I personally see it as a store of value. I see it as a treasury asset for institutions and sovereign wealth funds and governments and individuals as a, a place where you can store value over time because the monetary inflation rate right now is 10 plus percent and we've printed, a, you know, whatever, 5 trillion, 10 trillion. I don't, I don't even know what the number is at this point. We've been running the printing press for decades. And so you you just constantly infuse more dollars into the system. Uh, at some point you have monetary inflation and Bitcoin doesn't allow for that. In fact, it has the opposite effect. There's only 21 mi million Bitcoins that will ever be created. And every year, the amount of new Bitcoin that's being emitted into the network is decreasing or really every four years, they call them halving cycles. So it, it technically can't be manipulated why the fluctuations? It could be manipulated if somebody gained more than 51% control of the network, which means you would have to have a level of computing power that is equivalent or greater than 51% of the computing power. And this goes into a lot of technicalities. Um, that would cost billions of dollars at this point in order to do that. And so there's 
it's actually one of the cool things about Bitcoin is it's created a disincentive to try and gain control of the network for nefarious purposes. Um, can it be manipulated? Uh, I haven't personally gone too much into the weeds of this. I think that there are uh, whales is the language used in crypto Twitter and crypto world that there are definitely some large players in, in Bitcoin who are thought to sort of like move the market in one direction or the other. I think as you introduce financial s- institutions into the crypto economy that it potentially gives way towards more substantial movements if they're using leverage to amplify, you know, the movements on the upside or the downside um, the way that they do with traditional markets. And it's a lot of what you're seeing happening in the current stock market is why the moves have become so much bigger than, you know, they, they were previously. It's because when the Fed's printing money and interest rates are at zero, all the hedge funds and institutions are, you know, 140, 150, 160% invested, meaning they have 50% more capital invested than their actual dollars. And so when risks elevate, they have to unwind that, which means you have more selling happening than you, you would ordinarily have. So, as you've started to see, you know, I think if you're looking at like the, they call it the S curve of uh, technology's life cycle adoption. And usually you have the early adopters in the first, call it zero to 10%. And after that is institutional involvement if it continues to be successful. And we're at the point of institutional involvement. You had Fidelity just announced that they're introducing two 401k plans and retirement plans, and they have trillions of dollars of assets. And you have BlackRock and Goldman Sachs and Citi and Morgan Stanley making it capable for their clients. And uh, I think when the institutions see dollar signs, they see opportunity, and you're, you're really starting to see that. And venture capitalists have... Um, gotten pouring billions of dollars into this space and so uh i i can't with integrity say that it it cannot be manipulated um i think that over time the ability to manipulate the bitcoin network will will decrease as decentralization and security continues to increase. And if you sort of like see the network effects continue to proliferate that, uh, the ability to manipulate it would decrease over time. Hmm. Interesting. Really interesting. It's a fascinating new world we live in. We're, we're coming to close to the end, but I want to tap on this concept of, our data being monetized and how we can take back that control of our digital identities. Can you share your wisdom there? Fun topic. <laughs> yeah, I think there's uh, there's a quote that I heard in learning about the Cambridge Analytica fiasco that happened during the 2016 election that was data rights or human rights. And data in a lot of worlds is actually thought to be the world's greatest asset. 
and uh, if corporate uh, value is any indication of that, uh, the world's biggest hoarders of data are Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, etc. And they also happen to be the world's largest companies with the most amount of value created ever in history. And so uh, the chips kind of stack up to uh, prove that to be true up to this point. And so as I've kind of gone deeper down the crypto rabbit hole, I've become really excited about uh, Web3 opportunities that are um, being developed that are allowing us as individuals to regain control of our data, but to also participate in the monetization of that data. Um, some of my favorite projects are Helium, Hive Mapper, um, Audius is another one. And so, you know, you see lots of examples like this. Like, it, uh, I'll give you one that's happening in music that may be easy to understand is traditionally musicians have lots of different hands in the pot when they are creating music and in creating art. And I think the number is something like 40 or somewhere between 40 and 50% is what they actually get back in terms of revenue from what they're creating. All the rest of it is dispersed to platforms and lawyers and agents and, um, you know, different groups. And what Web3 offers is the opportunity uh, for them to regain control of their music rights. And instead of them having uh, Warner Brothers uh, take, you know, 20% or 30% of all the record sales and own the rights to their content. I mean, there's a lot of these musicians don't even own their own music rights they can use the Web3 ecosystem to basically say, hey, we're going to put this music out into the world. And they use it through a concept called NFT, non-fungible token. And what that allows people to do is to uh, buy their NFTs. And on the back end of that, as those NFTs are being bought and sold, that they're getting royalties that are coming back to them on transactions and they own all of the rights of those for the life of any transactions that are happening there and there are decentralized music platforms that are competing with spotify in the same way and spotify um i don't know it's like one one thousandth of a penny or something per play and so it's really hard to monetize uh, music and content on Spotify just given the economic incentives. And so um, you have lots of cool things happening in that in that space. And um, Helium is a project that allows you to uh, bring your devices online through uh, specific hardware and as data passes through that hardware, think about it like your Wi-Fi router that 
you know, your Wi-Fi router comes from Google and they're tracking all of your data and everything that's happening. Helium allows you to basically put devices online through your router, but also mine a cryptocurrency at the same time. Hmm. And so you can get paid uh, as data is passing through that. And the more data that passes through it, the more uh, crypto you're mining through that system. Uh, the last one I'll give you is Hive Mapper, which isn't actually live, but the basic idea is it's like a Garmin GPS. You know those yeah. those things that were once like the greatest innovation ever that nobody uses anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a Garmin GPS, and what they're doing is incentivizing individuals to put these GPSs in their cars and go, and they have cameras on them. And to go out and basically remap the world for them the way that, you know, Google Maps is, except they're looking to create a private, decentralized version of Google Maps that isn't tracking everywhere you go, all the people you see, the food that you eat. Google knows more about you than you know about yourself, regardless (laughs) if you want to admit it or not. It's it's the reality of our existence. As they, they do this and you are mapping sort of like the creating that map, you're simultaneously mining a native crypto asset. This one's called Honey. And so just for driving your car around and having the device in in your car and helping basically play a role in remapping the world into like a more secure and private internet and a way to navigate you're also participating in that through economic incentives via a crypto asset. What's their incentive in doing that? What do they get? They will also be dictating the, um, like, how will the crypto assets be distributed, i.e., like, a portion of them will go to the founders. Mm. A portion of them, if they have investors, would go to investors. A portion may go into a public sale. And so the incentive for them is if there are enough network effects... And if they're creating value and people actually, let's just say, start going from Google Maps to using Hive Mapper as their way to navigate around, the more people that use it would drive the value of their native currency higher. Got it. Okay. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah. It's really, really cool. It's one of uh, the most exciting things in in web three and you know i think we're really in the parallel of the early 2000s of dot com and we're building a new internet that has decentralization and it has privacy and it has security and it allows us to individuals regardless of how much wealth you have to be a participant in that and it's I think a lot of people think maybe they missed it, but I think we're so early. We're only in the stages of building infrastructure. And um, don't get me wrong, I don't think decentralization is a solution for everything. I don't think the blockchain is a solution for everything. I don't think crypto is appropriate for all parts of the world. Centralization is really important for a lot of 
things that are happening in our day-to-day lives. Um, so if we can figure out a way for decentralization and centralized actors to coexist, we can create a much better, more powerful, more distributed internet and uh, system that helps redistribute wealth throughout society. And it's a really, um, it's a really, really exciting time. And I think it, it is probably the biggest opportunity of our our generation in our lifetime. Amazing. Wow, that's so exciting and inspiring. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was really illuminating to a whole new world for me. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Any final thoughts? I mean, you've said so much, I, just in case. <laughs> I think the thing that has been coming up for me so frequently of late is th- that everything that happens in life is is neutral and how we interpret what's happening is what determines if it's good or bad in the lens through which we're seeing that and reminding ourselves that we get to make that choice in every moment of life even when circumstances are really unfavorable if it's a if it's a breakup or a business deal gone wrong or you lost a lot of money in an investment you got in a car accident something in your house broke your dishwasher broke your mom died your dad died like whatever right cancel 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 but yes we got yeah um we get to make that choice and that has really helped me to consistently uh, step outside circumstances through a lot of challenging periods of uh, my recent life experiences and I just wanted to share that. It's really, it's a, it's a challenge to stay neutral. We're emotional beings, right? And there are so many triggers, so many buttons. Well, we've been trained since we were children to label everything that happens in good life. And it's good or bad. You're ugly, you're pretty, you're fat, you're skinny, you're smart, you're stupid. I mean, it's like every... Think about the way that our education system is designed. It's like mm-hmm. every part of life, our home, you get rewarded if you get a good grade. You have to go to your room. You can't play video games. Like, it's every... We're, we're really, really trained from a young age... And uh, I think the, the the four agreements offers a, a really sound commentary on on how society trains us from the second we're coming out of the womb, and by the time we're teenagers, and we think we have control over our beliefs and uh, how we're operating in the world, we don't even know that we've already been uh, conditioned, <laughs> conditioned and trained like robots. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always try to look for the blessing. Like, if it's it's not happening to you, it's happening for you. If I always keep that perspective, then it's I'm much quicker to find the lesson and the opportunity um, for growth, for practicing patience, compassion, speaking your truth, whatever it is. Every opportunity comes your way. Um, every experience comes your way, so that you get to practice something. Yeah, 
I think that has been my biggest focus this year was looking at adversity in life as how do I retrain myself to see adversity as opportunity Mm -hmm. to make the decision that is not going into a hole of depression or sadness or anger or victimology to make the decision that is, well, this sucks and it's okay to feel bad about this, but what's on the other side of this is freedom. What's on the other side of this is lessons. And that's really what is available to us, I think, is there's, in the most difficult times, there's always these beautiful lessons that we see. And unfortunately, growth happens in the valleys, not at the peaks. So... Mm. For anybody uh, listening to this and thinking about that, I encourage uh, Matthew McConaughey's green lights and learning the art of running downhill and learning to just live and let be when things are easy because the mountain that you're going to climb is right around the corner. Uh, Get a sled. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Oh, Barrett, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom. That was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful for you. I love you. I appreciate you. You're such a magnificent human being, and your smile is so Uh. infectious. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Received. Oh, thank you guys for tuning in.